Okay, let's turn to Revelation chapter 9. And we are going to just start very abruptly at verses 5 and 6. This is the fifth trumpet judgment. I thought I would get through this in one message, and it's been strung out now over a few Sundays. We're in the midst of a rising crescendo of judgment that God is pouring upon the world, and we are in the latter half, I believe, of the tribulation at this point. The first four trumpet judgments were judgments that arose from natural uh, phenomenon, or, or they arose from, from things that God has created uh, in the natural world. And then when we get into the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments, we see judgments that are related to the demonic, or Satan, and then as we get into the seventh trumpet judgment, which, are the, which is or are the seven vile judgments, this is judgment directly from the hand of God. So trumpet judgments by way of, thank you, by way of things in the natural order, trumpet judgments by way of things in the supernatural order, and, trumpet, or, and, and a trumpet judgment or vile judgments that come from God. So there's a progression here. It's an orderly, laid out plan of judgment destined by God. But let's look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9. These locust creatures that are unleashed from the bottomless pit by Satan himself, I believe, a star fallen from heaven. This is the aftermath of the war in heaven that we'll read about in Revelation chapter 12. But to these locust-like creatures, verse 5 says, it was given them that they should not kill them. That is, the men on the earth at the time that aren't sealed by the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. So let's consider a moment the contract given to these creatures. This is God's army. That's what we talked about last week. We looked at this same event described in the book of Joel, and we talked about the mountain peaks of prophecy and revisited the dual nature of Old Testament prophecy. What a blessing it is to view these things from the side and to see the first coming of Christ and His second coming and the church age and things that was difficult for the prophets to see and understand, even though they wrote by inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But this army is called God's army in Joel, and even though Satan unleashes it and commands it, all of these things are under the control of God. A sovereign, benevolent, governing God who has a plan and a purpose. I don't think we can emphasize that enough. This is not good versus evil. This is good controlling evil. Good allowing evil to work so that good can excel and conquer. This, the contract here given to these creatures is one not of destruction, but of torment. Okay, This is infernal torment. These demonic creatures are allowed to torment man. They're not allowed to kill them. They're allowed to torment them and not the ones that have the seal of God in their foreheads. These are the, at least, this includes the 144,000 witnesses that we read about in Revelation 7. Possibly those 
um, that come to Christ as a result of their ministry. The Bible says that those who are saved are sealed by the Holy Ghost until the day of redemption. And so this would apply not only to Christians in this church age, but I believe to tribulation saints. So possibly they would be included here, although it's only specifically stated that these Jewish witnesses have that seal in their foreheads. The contract is torment and oppression. The job description, the job duration is five months. I find it interesting that May to September is the normal time or season for desert locusts in the Middle East. That's a five-month season. So these demonic creatures are given a season to torment men. If you read verse 6, it suggests that what we're talking about here is not a physical sting or a physical wounding. What we're talking about is the torment of demonic domination and possession. It says that those days men will try to die, they will not be able to find death, they will desire death, and it will flee from them. Okay? These creatures are able to sting, but this sting causes torment. So I don't believe it's physical, I believe it's spiritual. And we're talking about mass demonic possession, mass demonic domination, and the things associated with demon possession that we see in the New Testament. Um, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 30, I mean Luke chapter 9, verses 38 through 40. And we have here a description of a young boy who was demonically possessed. Luke 9, 38 through 40. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, talking to Jesus, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he foameth again. So here we have pain and torment. And then it says, and bruising him, not killing him, but bruising him, hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And then Jesus goes on to rebuke the unclean spirit and heal the, the, the young boy. So we have the effects of demonic possession here are pain and torment and bruising instead of death. So things very similar to what are described here in Revelation chapter 9. These are the effects. Torment is the effect of demonic possession. Torment is the effect of demonic oppression. It causes people to do crazy things that harm themselves. It causes people not to be able to make the choice to die. We see these things a lot um, in the third world or laboring in places where people worship idols and there's a lot of demonic activity. There's a day coming when that's going to characterize not just third world villages or remote cult idolatrous cultures, but the entire world, even the technologically sophisticated world. So I believe what we have here as judgment is widespread demonic oppression and possession. So if I think we're, if we're at the next outline now, if you want to go there. We've seen the contract here, a job description of torment, a job duration of five months, 
Um, it goes on to say, um, give some characteristics of these creatures in verses 7 through 11. The shapes of the locusts were likened to horses prepared unto battle. So we know we're not talking about literal locusts here. That's pretty obvious right there from the start. Locusts don't look like horses. They're not shaped like horses. And on their heads were as it were the crown were crowns like gold and their faces were as the faces of men. Locusts don't have faces like men. Normal ones don't at least. And they had hair as the hair of women and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions and their stings were in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, the star fallen from heaven from the beginning of the chapter, which, uh, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath he his name Apollyon. These words mean destroyer. One woe is past, and behold, there come two more, more woes hereafter. So we see some characteristics of these demonic creatures. Now, their torment, it says, um, that they had tails like a scorpion, and there were stings in their tails, and their tails were able to harm or torment men for five months. Now, this wasn't a literal, this isn't a literal sting, this is the pain and suffering. It's similar to the pain and suffering or the torment that happens when a scorpion stings a man, like a scorpion. And no one in here I don't think's ever been stung by a scorpion, have you? It's a very painful, painful wound. In fact, uh, it, some of the old Roman historians talk about how the Roman soldiers were famed for their ability to endure pain without even flinching in a battle. Without batting an eye, they would remain in their formations despite terrible pain and wounding and would not be moved. But it's also recorded that some of them were stung by scorpions in the deserts of Africa and when this happened, they screamed like babies and writhed in pain. And so these famous Roman soldiers who would not bat an eye in battle when stung by the scorpions in the deserts of North Africa writhed in pain. I had an interesting little uh, article I thought I would read for you um, talking about scorpions in antiquity in just a couple of paragraphs. It says, Scorpions are a horrible plague, declared Pliny, who was a historian many, many, many years ago. Poisonous like vipers, except that they inflict even worse torture by killing their victims with lingering painful death that lasts three days. Everyone detests scorpions, chimed an alien. So th this, this person is quoting ancient historians um, from the Roman times and the Greek times. Another natural historian of ancient Rome. In the desert of the Middle East, the deadly creatures, quote, lurk beneath every stone and every clod of dirt, unquote. Scorpions posed such a menace along the caravan, caravan routes that Persian kings of antiquity routinely ordered great scorpion hunts and paid bounties for the most killed. In the Sinai Peninsula, said alien, giant scorpions, quote, prey on lizards and even cobras, unquote. 
Quote, anyone who treads barefooted on scorpion droppings suffers terrible ulcers on the sole of the foot. Unquote. The largest scorpion species are seven to eight inches long and they do hunt lizards and snakes. But scorpion poop pellets are not known uh, to be dangerous to step on. Alien listed 11 types of scorpions, white, black, smoky, red, green, pot-bellied, crab-like, fiery red-orange, those with a double sting, those with seven segments, and those with wings. Most of these have been identified by entomologists. The others may have been venomous insects mistaken for the stinging arthropods. Twenty different scorpion species are known today in the Middle East. None of them fly, although many ancient texts refer to flying scorpions and winged scorpions are depicted in ancient Mesopotamian art. Pliny, the ancient historian, explained this error by pointing out that very strong desert winds and sandstorms gave the scorpions the power of flight, and while they were airborne, they extended their legs to resemble membraned wings. Pliny also claimed that scorpion stings were most deadly in the morning before the creatures had used up all their venom. The sting of a scorpion is terrifically painful, causing profuse sweating, intense thirst, great agitation, muscle spasms, convulsions, swollen genitals, slow pulse, irregular breathing, and even death. Common defenses against scorpions since antiquity include wearing high boots and sleeping in hammocks or raised beds with each bedpost in a basin of water. Sprinkling scorpions with powdered asinite, or what's called monk's hood, a poisonous plant, caused the creatures to shrivel up, remarked Alien, but they were supposedly revived by hellebore, another toxic plant. So anyway, a dangerous creature inflicted great pain and torment and was well known in the Middle East uh, in ancient times. And so we don't have those size scorpions here in the States. I have seen them in places I've traveled, black ones in the deserts, I believe, of Africa, small ones, but mean creatures, and their sting and their power is in their tail. Just like with these locust creatures, these creatures have a power in their tail which resembles the scorpion. It resembles the sting of these creatures. Demonic creatures would resemble the pain and suffering caused when a scorpion stings a man. Demonic oppression is, or possession is characterized by pain and suffering, torment. In fact, the torment of demonic domination can be such an extent that the person possessed or the person oppressed loses the ability of free choice and is in agony of body and soul. So they would lose even the ability if controlled by demons to, or possessed by demons to kill themselves. So with the first four trumpet judgments, there is judgment from the physical realm. It's outside. I believe what we have here is from the spiritual realm. It's inside. It's inside. Okay? Are these creatures probably invisible to the naked eye? Yeah, I believe this is probably something that's invisible to people. It's demon demons being unleashed from hell to go forth without restraint and possess men and torment them for five months. Okay? Widespread demonic oppression and possession, and there's no escape unless you're sealed by God in your forehead. Just like we have no escape in this present age from the demonic unless we have the Holy Spirit. 
Okay? Those that have the Holy Spirit living within them cannot be possessed by a demon spirit. We can be tempted to an extent we might could even be oppressed. But we have great power and authority over the demonic that's given to us by Christ if we would but wield it. Very simple power and authority. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's not a power and authority that the unregenerate man has. Let's look at another episode of the demonic in the New Testament with Jesus and His ministry. Turn to Mark 5. Mark chapter 5, we have the well-known story of the demoniac in the country of the Gadarenes. Let's just read this story. Matthew, would you read the first five verses, please? Okay, here we have torment. This man is in the mountains. He's living in the tombs, in the cemetery. And what is he doing? He's crying out. He's cutting himself. He's harming himself uh, with stones. There is torment that described his demonic, or, or defined his demonic possession. Uh, Jason, would you read verses 6 through 10? So, this demon not only, or these demons not only tormented these men, but they knew Jesus' power and authority. They knew that they were subject to Him. In the same sense, these demonic creatures in Revelation, they know they're subject to God's will. They know they're subject to God's power and authority, and they can only do what He allows them to do. Notice how this man who was possessed by demons ran and worshipped Jesus because he knew who Jesus was. Many times in the New Testament, the demons would say when Christ would come around, we know who you are. There was one case in the Gospels where someone was following Jesus and, disciples, Jesus and His disciples and crying out, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. So even the demons confess boldly things that some Christians or professing Christians are afraid to confess in public. They know who God is. They know who the Son of God is. And so these demonic... These demon spirits begged Jesus, please uh, um, not, don't send them out. In one of the other uh, uh, accounts, it talks about they didn't want to be sent into the deep or into the what? The abyss. The bottomless pit where these creatures in Revelation 9 are unleashed from. Okay? Not only was this man possessed by one demon, he was possessed by many. Okay? 
Um, Daniel, would you read 11 through... Uh, let's read uh, 11 through 15, if you don't mind. Now there was there, nigh unto the mountains, a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what, was, what, what it was that was done. And they come, they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed by the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Okay, so these demons begged Christ not to send them away, not to send them into the abyss or out into the country where they would have to search for habitation. So Jesus allowed them to go into a herd of swine, and those swine, of course, ran off the cliff into the, into the sea and were killed. So a legion of devils possessed a herd of 2,000 swine. And of course, the people that were caring for these pigs saw it, ran back to the city and told them what was done, and the people came out and it said that they were afraid. And what really made them afraid is they saw this demoniac who they knew to be a crazy, psychotic man crying and cutting himself and living in the tombs. What made them afraid was now he was sitting, he was calm, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. Only Jesus Christ can deliver from the power of Satan. Only Jesus Christ can do this instantly with a person that's been possessed or, or oppressed by Satan and his minions. You would think the people would be happy, but they were afraid. A lot of times people are afraid of the work of God, even when it involves healing. You know, there's so many in our society today that are so afraid of a case where a homosexual is delivered by God and is a new person and no longer has those filthy, wicked, vile desires and no longer acts upon them. The world doesn't want to hear that. They don't want to believe that that's even possible. Because if that is possible, then it means that that behavior is sinful and people don't want to accept that. They want to accept that whatever they do is okay. And that to say something is right or wrong is to be a Pharisee. Okay? That prevailing notion has infected our church. This idea that I'm super spiritual because I just accept everybody and I'm not going to be a Pharisee like everyone else because they say something is right or wrong. Yes, there is right or wrong. And yes, by their fruits, you shall know them. We don't know whether... We can't know for sure a person's heart or whether or not they're saved, but by their fruits, Jesus said we can measure that. And we can act toward them dependent upon that fruit whether they are brethren in Christ or whether they're lost and need the gospel. doesn't make you a Pharisee because you say something's right or wrong. It's devilry that says saying something is right or wrong is, is pharisaical. That wasn't the Pharisees' problem. Their problem wasn't saying things that God says were right is right and what God says were wrong were wrong. The Pharisees were taking traditions of men and putting them above God and they of all people were hypocrites. They weren't doing the things or living the things or confessing the things that they were telling everybody else to do. 
But this demoniac is healed. He's sitting, he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. And then the rest of the story is pretty interesting. When they, verse 16, saw it, told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine, what did they do? Did they say, oh, it's the Messiah. Come into our city and heal and, and, and teach us the Word of God. No, it says they began to pray Him. That means to beg Him, Jesus, to leave us. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. That's terribly sad. That's a terribly sad testimony right there. Verse 18, And when He was come into the ship, He that had been possessed with the devil prayed Him or begged Him, begged Jesus that He might be with Him. He wanted to stay with Jesus and His disciples. But look what Jesus said, Howbeit Jesus suffered Him not, but said unto Him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. So Jesus didn't allow Him to come with them. Jesus had another purpose for this man. This man was to go back to His own people and declare what Christ had done for him and be a witness right there in that region. And then look at verse 20. This is another powerful testimony to the healing touch of Christ. And He, that is the demoniac, or the former demoniac, departed and He began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for Him and all men did marvel. So not only was this man delivered by Christ from the devil, from a legion of demons, but he immediately was made whole and he immediately was obedient and went out and obeyed what his Lord told him to do and published this testimony, which undoubtedly was a great witness in this region of Decapolis. You see, this man could be judged by his fruit. We know he was truly and fully delivered by the power of the devil because the fruit born in his life immediately was unto the glory of God and unto obedience to the words of Jesus Christ. What an amazing testimony. These people in the tribulation, these, these sealed of Israel, are delivered from their blindness and they recognize Jesus as Messiah. And then they're protected because of the seal of God from this awful judgment, this locust uh, judgment of locust creatures. But they're not protected to sit still. Their ministry is to go into all the world and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. After Jesus' prophecies that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the end of the world and then will the end come. Okay? So only Christ can deliver from this type of power. By the power of the Holy Spirit. But remember, in the days of the tribulation, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that the Spirit doesn't indwell here like He does now. The restrainer, He that letteth, or He that restrains is the Holy Spirit in 2 Thessalonians 2, will be taken out of the way as the church is taken out of heaven. We've talked about that. How can the Holy Spirit be taken out of the way if the church is still here, if the church is indwelled by the Holy Spirit? No, the church is raptured out. And then the restrainer is removed and evil is given full reign. The only thing that doesn't allow evil to have full reign today is the restrainer, the Holy Spirit. The only thing that keeps this wicked country from looking like idolatrous Tibet or idolatrous Nepal is the restrainer for His purposes. But one day He will step aside. Evil will have full reign for a time and that full reign will be judgment on the wickedness of this earth. So things will be different. I believe the Holy Spirit will operate in the tribulation much like He did in the Old Testament, coming and going upon people. 
Not that, not that people that come to Christ as a result of these witnesses will be any less saved, but it'll be more of an Old Testament type of relationship with the Holy Spirit. As Job was protected from, only, from, from death, Satan wasn't allowed to kill Job. The first uh, uh, test that Job was given, Satan wasn't even allowed to touch Job's body. And then when Satan was allowed to touch his body, God says you're not allowed to kill him. Job was protected. So are the sealed of God during the tribulation. And so are we today. We need not forget that as followers of Jesus Christ, we see this protection today. Believers can be tempted. We can be discouraged. We can be deceived at times. We might even give, be given over to oppression at times, but we cannot be possessed by the evil one as this demoniac. It's impossible. The demon can't come in and kick out the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. We, the believers cannot be possessed, and as mentioned, we have great power and authority over the evil one in such a way that we should not live in fear. Bob, we turn to James 4, verse 7, please? Daddy, if you'll turn to Jude, the book of Jude, verses 9 and 10. Let's just consider a few verses that deal with the believer's relationship to the demonic or to Satan. Now those are pretty simple words there. Submit yourselves to God. How do we wield power over the evil one? How do we protect ourselves? How do we um, uh, exhibit authority over Him? Number one, we submit ourselves to God. If we submit ourselves to, to the Lord, we're protected. And then, what does it say next? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Does it say fight the devil and he will flee from you? Run from the devil and he will flee from you? No, resist. Resist. Simple. Simple, a simple weapon for the believer. That is great power and authority that an unregenerate man cannot have or cannot understand. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does Jude verses 9 and 10 have to say? Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. We're told we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. But we're also told in the book of Jude that a characteristic of false teachers is that they speak evil of dignities. Or they speak hastily about dignities. These dignities in the context are not earthly kings or earthly powers. These dignities are angelic powers, including satanic ones. Because the example used here is Satan. So it says that false teachers in verse 8 speak evil of dignities, and then it goes on to say even Michael the archangel wasn't hasty in his speech or did not level a railing accusation against Satan. 
Even Mar- Michael wouldn't argue with Satan. What did he respond? The Lord rebuked thee. Now, I don't know exactly what all this is. This is a, a window into an event that the Scriptures don't speak about elsewhere. All we know about Moses is that God buried him. When Moses died, the people of Israel didn't bury him and put him in a grave. It says he went up on top of Mount, I believe it's Mount Pisgah. He was shown the land of promise and then he died and it said God buried him. So we don't know what God did with the body or where it is. Okay? Undoubtedly, if the, if the Israelites had buried him, you know, people would be worshiping at the grave or treating him today as the, um, as the Muslims revere Muhammad. But anyway, God buried him, so there was an event that, um, folk, that dealt with his body. So there was some kind of d- debate with the devil concerning his body and Michael the archangel. That's all we know about here. But even Michael, who was given great power and authority, Michael is the, is the archangel and the protector of the people of Israel, as revealed in the book of Daniel. But he didn't level a hasty accusation. He just said, the Lord rebuked thee. But those that level hasty accusations or take lightly or poke fun at Satan and his emissaries are fools. They're like animals and don't even know what they speak about. So though we have great power and authority, we as believers are also exhorted to seriously consider these things. It's not a joking matter. Satan and his powers of possession and oppression and temptation are great in this present world. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. Why is that? Because Adam gave his birth, sold his birthright to Satan and Satan has been given authority over this planet for this time. We know that. Satan told Jesus that I have been given all of this. If you'll just bow down. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms in the world. said, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give it to you. That would have not even been a temptation for Christ and His humanity unless Satan actually had the power and the authority to offer it. So God in His sovereignty has allowed Satan to be the God of this world until such a time as the kinsman redeemer returns. The kinsman redeemer purchased what had been sold at the cross and he'll return to claim it when he comes back at his second coming. But Satan is in his position of authority and even we as Christians shouldn't make light of that. You know, I don't even like, you know, images that portray Satan as a devil with horns and a pitchfork or, or there, there used to be, uh, uh, you know, there'd be Christian t-shirts that would have mocking statements about Satan. Uh, help me out. There was one... Satan is a poo-poo head or something. I saw some Christian wearing one time. That's, that's foolish. You know, the Bible, they, these are serious things. And we should consider them seriously. And because it's serious, we resist the devil. And we don't try to fight him with our powers and authorities, but with the power and authority given to us by God. The best way to rebuke Satan, the best way to resist him, or his minions as they attempt to oppress and discourage us, is to follow the example of Michael. Four words, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. That's all we need to say. Not, I, I'm not even comfortable with these Christians parading around and shouting out, and there's a demon under every rock, and I rebuke that spirit, I rebuke this, I rebuke this. I re-. No, the Lord rebuke you. Foolish words, the words of brute beast that don't understand what they're even talking about. 
Notwithstanding, I'm reminded of the last, or not the last verse, but verse 3 of Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That hymn was written because uh, in response to many, many episodes of discouragement and oppression and temptation that Martin Luther battled in his day against what he believed was Satan himself. In fact, there's a story that talks about him in his room in a cold stone room arguing and yelling with the devil and then threw a lamp across the room at the devil because he wouldn't leave him alone. People would hear these things. But this hymn was written as a rebuke to the evil one in a sense. And verse 3 says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And that word is Jesus Christ, or Jesus, Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus Christ fails him. He's already failed him from the foundation of the world at the cross, and when He comes again, it all works together. Resist the devil by the name of Jesus. Not, railing, not leveling railing accusations. Now there's demonic activity that takes place all over the world. And people that live in idolatrous societies who dabble in superstition and dabble in witchcraft are constantly afraid of demonic activity. Fear regarding all of these things. We as believers are not called to live in fear. If your life is characterized by fear, whether it be hypochondria, you're always worried you're going to get sick, whether it be paranoia about going somewhere because, oh man, you know, a plane's going to crash, or oh, this is dangerous, I can't go. We are not called to live like that. We ought to be willing to go anywhere without fear. That doesn't mean I don't have fear from time to time. I do. But we need to battle it and step out anyway. But in places like Nepal, the people have so many superstitions in the village. They consider it crazy for you to be walking or hiking through the woods at night. They won't do it. Okay? We stayed with Brother John's family in the village one time and we had to leave his house. It was like four in the morning. It was still dark to hike out to this dirt road so we could catch the morning's first bus out of there. And his mother was terrified and she begged us, please don't, it's too dangerous. And her fear was devils and demons. You know, Bishnu's mother has talked about going to the field when she was a child and seeing creatures and things following her and just paranoid. The last time we were in western Nepal with that team of brothers, we hiked out to some villages and we had a limited amount of time and we would spend most of our time in the day stopping and talking to people and sharing the gospel and giving out literature, but we were forced to walk at night so we could get from place to place. And so we walked many, many hours at night. Some of the young believers that had come with us up from the valley, they were you could tell they were a little nervous at night. We're walking through the pitch black woods along a river with, with just a couple of headlamps, and you could tell they're even a little nervous because they grew up with all that superstition. But the villagers thought we were crazy when we would parade through there. Why would you be walking out here? And to be honest with you, we were walking and talking amongst ourselves and there was no fear because there was nothing to fear. And we got from point A to point B with no trouble. 
No demons came and chased us. We didn't see any demonic creatures or red eyes or anything like that. We as believers don't have to fear these things and God protected us and we were able to go about the work of the ministry and simply resist the devil and he fled from us. We have no reason to live in fear, although these things are serious and they happen all the time. There's things that go on all over the world that are, I believe, demonic activity. People going missing, strange things happening to people, people seeing strange things. It's all demonic activity existing to tempt, to deceive, to intimidate or destroy men. But praise God, those sealed by the Holy Ghost are protected from these things. These things happen a lot in secret today. In secret, behind the scenes. So much so that the average American would scoff at it. But in the days of these trumpet judgments, they will be open. They will be unleashed. They won't be hidden and in secret and rare. They will be common. Common. Okay, some of these characteristics we've, we just read through here. Um, obviously, these are not literal locusts. Again, we look at the immediate context. They're composite creatures. You know, no locust on this planet looks anything like what is described here. You know, we can go to other places in Scripture like Joel chapter 2 and see the scriptural context of a similar army. That's obviously not natural because they can't be hurt in its ultimate fulfillment. These are composite creatures. They have characteristics of horses, faces of men, hair like women, teeth like lions. They have a tail that resembles, that is able to sting like a scorpion, etc., etc. In Revelation 4, we see composite creatures, the cherubim around the throne of God. We see the same creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1. These creatures are Satan's counterfeits. Satan always has a counterfeit for what God does. These are not cherubim. They're not heavenly cherubim. They're infernal cherubim from the pits of hell. They're demonic creatures. Satan's counterfeits of God's creatures. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that there are four things which are small in the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are small, but wise. Why? They prepare their food in summer so they have it in the winter. The conies. A coney is like a rabbit that lives... It's kind of like a hare. It could be like a marmot that lives up in rocky areas in higher altitudes. The conies are a feeble folk, yet they're able to build houses in the rocks. The Bible speaks about locusts. Proverbs 30, 27. They're small in the earth. They have no king, but yet they go forth in bands as if they are being led when there is no leader. The amazing thing about locusts is they don't have a leader. It's not like ants that have a queen or bees that have a queen. There is no leader. They're all the same, but yet they travel as bands and they operate as if they are under some leadership. And then the spider who works with her hands and has her homes in king's palaces. All of these things are small yet exceedingly wise. Testimony, I believe, of an almighty Creator. Design and complexity in our creation. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. But friends, these locusts here in Revelation aren't literal locusts. Why? They have a king. The locusts here on earth, according to Proverbs, don't have a king. These have a king. These infernal demons 
from the abyss have a king. And we're even told his name here. I believe these creatures are invisible. I don't believe you'll be able to see them with the naked eye during the tribulation. I believe they'll come upon people, possess them, torment them, and people won't even have a clue what's going on. They'll be foaming at the mouth. They'll be cutting themselves, harming themselves, tormented in pain. You know, a lot of quote-unquote mental illness that produces torment, I believe, is the result of demonic possession today. It's not a physical sickness or a psychological sickness that exists completely separate from a man's spirit. We act as if a man only has a body and mind, will, and emotions and that these things are independent one of another and we have no clue in modern medicine about the spirit of men. That's why I appreciate to an extent Chinese medicine and Eastern medicine because it at least views man in his holistic state. It doesn't try to separate physical from emotional and mental. It all works together. The human body is an amazing unity. But it's also a trinity. Paul told, uh, I believe it was the Thessalonians, I pray God that your whole body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless unto the coming of Christ. Paul gives us the three parts of the human being right there. Body, the physical, soul, the mind, will, and emotions. And spirit, the conscience, the avenue whereby man can have relationship with God. When we're born into this world, our spirit is dead. It can only be revived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an empty uh, um, uh, domicile, per se, that can be even inhabited by evil and the demonic. But it can be revived and made alive through the Holy Spirit. The Bible says God made man in His image. What does that mean? God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Man is a trinity. Man the spirit, man the soul, man the body. Okay? I think that's very interesting. But I believe these creatures are invisible. They do have a king. It says his name is Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek. This means destroyer. Okay? He, he even exists today. He even is viewed as a king today by many, many, many thousands and thousands of people around the world. His name is also called Shiva. And in Sanskrit, means destroyer. Some of you have seen him or likenesses of him. Some likenesses look like something from Spongebob. Some likenesses look very scary. I was going to bring an image of Shiva this morning to show you what he looks like, but I don't want to bring his image in here. He has no right to come in here. I'm not going to bring his ugly face in here. It's actually quite beautiful in some, some uh, renderings. He's blue-skinned with multiple arms, and he's got a cobra and a trident. Sometimes you'll see this trident impaled with human heads. A lot of times he's sleeping underneath the foul demon goddess Kali whose tongue is hanging out and blood dripping from her hands and she's always standing there and Shiva is sleeping underneath her because she does his bidding. Shiva the destroyer, Apollyon, Abaddon, this king, this star fallen from heaven that's allowed to open the bottomless pit and to lead this army. Satan is the ultimate counterfeiter. He counterfeits even God's cherubim creatures. 1 Peter 5, 8. Matthew, will you read that this morning? 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion and walketh about, seeking whom he may. Be sober, be vigilant. Yes, the Bible tells us 
To resist the devil, he will flee from us. It tells us not to bring railing accusation against us, against him, and it also tells us to be sober and vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? It means to watch. What does it mean to be sober? To be clear-headed, not to be distracted. Why should we be sober and vigilant? Simply because our adversary, the devil, Satan, that's what that word Satan means, adversary. The devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Satan seeks to devour you. He can't possess you, but he can tempt you to sin. Just like Balaam was not able to curse Israel because they were blessed by God, Balaam could tempt Israel to sin against God and then invite God's judgment upon them. That was the sin and error of Balaam. He thought he could manipulate God. Yes, Israel was punished, but they were still blessed and God still fulfilled His promises through them. But Satan can't possess you. He can't take you to hell with him, but he can tempt you unto sin so that God's chastisement will be in your life and you will be rendered ineffective to do His work. Be sober, be vigilant. Satan's role is to devour. What does it mean to devour? It means to deceive, to intimidate, and to destroy. If he, he seeks to devour the Spirit. How? Deception. So that the Spirit won't humble itself before God. He seeks to devour the soul. What is that? Intimidation. Fear. And all of those things that wreak havoc on the mind, will, and emotions. And He seeks to devour the body. That is to destroy. Here in this fifth trumpet judgment, His, uh, his uh, strategy or His weapons will be to devour through deception and intimidation and possession. And we'll see with the sixth trumpet, He's given permission to actually destroy and to kill a third of mankind. So let's be wary as believers that Satan and his demons are real. They have no power over us if we will resist them. If we will submit to the Lord. If we will refrain from railing accusations. If we will be sober and vigilant. But if we let our guard down, we might find ourselves living in fear. We might find ourselves intimidated. We might find ourselves oppressed or deceived. There are many people I believe are genuinely born again that are living deceived because they let their guard down. Either they're so self-absorbed, they can't see the forest for the trees, or they have become a part of something that they think is of God, but it's not. Okay? You know, there are cults and stuff popping up all over the place, but not just cults, individual Christian lives living in disobedience. It's all the same spirit. It's a spirit of rebellion against God. It's a spirit of self-absorption. And it's the result of being deceived and not grounded in the Word. It's the result of not being sober and vigilant, submitting to God instead of submitting to yourself. We must be wary. So these are, this, is what happening, this is what's happening with the fifth trumpet judgment. We've seen some characteristics of these composite creatures. And then verse 12 is what I would say is their commemoration. This happens for five months. Okay, We're in the last half of the tribulation, I believe. Three and a half years is how many months? It's 42 months. So really, five months is a small window. Okay, Five months, they're given power and authority to possess and torment a vast portion of mankind. And then it's done. Then it's done. Verse 12 in chapter 9 says, One woe is past, overdone. 
The fact that it was limited in its time proves that God was in control. And when the time was finished, He said, enough, it's done. And they had to comply. One woe is past, and behold, there come two more after this. There was an end to this plague. There is an end to this plague after five months, but it's only one of three, my friends. It's only the beginning. The commemoration of this event or this horrible judgment is that it's just the beginning. And that's a scary thing. Okay? Maybe that scares you as children to think about these terrible things happening on this earth, but you can escape it if you'll come to Christ. You can escape it. The Bible says, God hath not appointed His church unto wrath. These things are the wrath of God. And we've not been appointed to wrath. We've been delivered from the wrath to come. And praise God, even in those days, uh, servants of the Most High God, Jewish people will wake up and be spared from these things and be witnesses. And there will even be those that come to Christ. I don't believe it will be people that have clearly heard the Gospel. The Bible says God will send them a strong spirit of delusion that they would believe and fall for a lie. Just as the lying prophets came to Ahab and were deceived by that spirit of deception. When it says here in verse 12, one woe is past and two more, more woes come after, we can see that we have uh, what's happening is, is chronological possession. I mean, pro, uh, progression, I'm sorry. Chronological progression. So this phrase here is showing us chronology. Okay, There will be two more woes after this and these woes will chronologically progress in time. Okay. Now when we look at the second woe, what we see is the sixth trumpet here in the last part of Revelation 9. Revelation 10 is a parenthesis, and we're going to talk about that later. I think what John sees in Revelation 10 is Jesus Himself coming down to earth, putting one foot on the earth, one foot in the sea, and He's got this book in His hand, and He declares there is time no longer. It's a public reading of the title deed of the earth. John sees this vision. And then he's told that in these days, the end will come quickly, but you're going to have to prophesy many, many, many years before many, many, many people before this will transpire. So we have a, a parenthesis in chapter 10, but then when we get to chapter 11, we, we have discussion concerning the temple that is in Jerusalem during these days. There will be a rebuilt temple. And then we're, we're given information about these two witnesses that will kind of be the leaders of these 144,000 Jews. These two witnesses that are appointed by God to preach for 42 months, three and a half years. I don't believe that 42... Um, no, they're, they're, they're given authority to preach for uh, 1,203 score days. The temple is allowed to be tread underfoot for 42 months. Now that's the same period of time, three and a half years. But I don't believe that the ministry of the two witnesses is necessarily the last half of the tribulation as is the trampling of the temple when, from the time Antichrist destroys it in the midpoint into the end. I believe their ministry will overlap these two periods. Okay, But we go, we go and we read about their ministry and their preaching for three and a half years and how this just enrages Antichrist and it enrages the world and they're there comes a time when Antichrist is given power to kill these witnesses. Okay? They're killed. 
Their bodies are not buried. They lie in the street for three days. People around the earth rejoice and they trade gifts and give gifts to one another like Christmas to celebrate. And then the power of God, the Spirit of God returns to their bodies and they get up in view of everyone. And a voice says, come up here. And they're raptured directly to heaven. And at, at that moment, when these witnesses are raptured, it says in chapter 11, verse 13, at that same hour was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain 7,000 men, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So in that same hour, there is an earth, a great earthquake in Jerusalem that kills 7,000 people. And then look at verse 14. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So the second woe that we're going to look at now in the latter part of Revelation 9 is not infernal torment, it's infernal destruction. It's not an army of demons, it's what I believe are an army of fallen angels. But this sixth trumpet judgment is not just this army of fallen angels, it also includes the earthquake that happens when these witnesses are resurrected back to heaven and it's all the second woe. So chronologically, we're at a time toward the end of the ministry of these witnesses, somewhere in the latter half of the tribulation, and the end of the sixth trumpet will coincide with their rapture and a great earthquake. So this kind of goes together with what happens at the end of chapter 11. And then chapter 12 and 13 and 14, we get into some more parenthetical uh, uh, visions that talk about characters and things going on behind the scenes throughout the tribulation. And then in chapter 15, we pick up with the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet or the seven vials. So that gives you a picture of what is going on. But as we get into the last half of chapter 9, we have the sixth trumpet judgment. This is also called the second woe. Okay, First trumpet judgment, first woe. Why are these grouped together? The, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet? Because unlike the first four, they're related specifically to the spiritual world and the power of the spiritual world. It involves the unleashing of demons, the unleashing of fallen angels, and the unleashing of God Himself. As opposed to the unleashing of things and events and aspects that God has created in His created order in the natural world. If the fifth trumpet was infernal, hellish torment, the sixth trumpet is infernal, hellish destruction. Let's look for a moment. Verse 13, The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay, not to torment, but to kill the third part of men. That's pretty scary. Let's look for a moment at this reference to the horns of the golden altar. What is this altar being referred to? It's the same altar that we see in chapter 8. When the trumpets are about to sound, it says that an angel came out to this altar with a golden censer and incense, which was the prayer of the saints, and he offered it upon this altar of incense. 
And then he took and filled the censer with fire from the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were thunderings and lightnings and a great earthquake. And then the seven angels came out to sound. This is a golden altar of incense that's in heaven. Okay? And this golden altar of incense it represents or carries the prayers of the saints up before God. A voice, when the second, sixth trumpet uh, is preparing to sound, a voice from the four horns of this golden altar tells the angel with the sixth trumpet, or the sixth angel, to loose four angels bound in the river Euphrates. We talked about when we looked at chapter 8 how what we saw in heaven was depicted on earth as the altar of incense in the Old Testament tabernacle in the temple and how the role of that incense altar, it stood for the prayers of God's people rising up before Him. If you remember back in chapter 6, the fifth seal judgment was not anything specific that happened here on earth, but it was the martyrs of all ages in under the altar, what altar? This same altar with the golden horns. This same heavenly altar of incense. The fifth seal judgment, the souls of those martyrs of all ages were, were under the altar asking the Lord, how long until you avenge us on the earth? And they were given white robes and they were told to rest for a little season until the full number of martyrdom would be reached. Then they would be avenged. So this golden altar is there in heaven. The souls of the martyrs crying out for vengeance are under it. The incense up before God represents the uh, prayers of the saints. Prayers for vengeance. From that golden altar, fire is cast to the earth and so the seven trumpet judgments begin. And then from here, from the four horns of that altar, a voice orders the loosing of some angels bound in the river Euphrates. This altar of incense had four horns on it in the Old Testament. And it tells us that Aaron would make an atonement upon the horns of this altar of incense once a year with blood from the sin offering. He would touch the horns of the altar. These horns on the altar of incense were considered a place of refuge. Okay, The altar of incense and the, and the smoke going up before the Lord symbolized the prayers of God's people, and it was a place people would flee to to find refuge. There are instances in the Old Testament where it says people went into the tabernacle and clung to the horns of the altar for protection. And it was a place of refuge. Just like the local church body here today is designed for, to be a place of refuge for us from a troubled world. We ought to be able to come in here and find refuge not the temptations of this world, not the angers, not the, uh, the, the, the discouragements of this world, but a refuge. In that sense, the altar and those four horns were a place of refuge, but not in a superstitious religious sense, in a, in a true spiritual sense. There's a couple of, of uh, stories in the Old Testament about people that ran to that altar and grabbed onto the horns to try to escape judgment. Let's, we got a few minutes. We got started early today, so it's good. We've got a little bit of extra time. Let's just look at this for a moment. Uh, Jason, 1 Kings 1, 50-51. And Daniel, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 28. Here we've got a situation where two people run to grab on to the horns of this altar of incense. 
in the tabernacle, hoping they're going to escape judgment. One of them is spared, and one of them is not. And let's see, let's just read about this. It's kind of interesting. 1 Kings 1 50 through 51. Adonijah. Okay, Adonijah was one of the sons of David. And when David was elderly and getting ready to die, there was a conspiracy to put Adonijah on the throne when God had ordained that Solomon would be the king. And if you read the story, there was a big parade and everything, and Joab was involved and some of the other men that had been loyal to David. And so when this happened, Nathan and Bathsheba were concerned. You know, David, didn't you say Solomon would be king? And they went to him and... They anointed him king and then Solomon was put on the throne and uh, Adonijah was not allowed to usurp the throne against the will of God and against the will of his father David. And so when this happened, Adonijah was afraid. He had not been declared king, but he had been part of a conspiracy to make him king. And in many ways, perhaps he was kind of a, almost an innocent victim but when he found out that Solomon was actually the king, he was afraid and he ran where? To this altar and he grabbed onto the horns of the altar and he thinking, you know, seeing this as a place of refuge and then he begged Solomon not to do anything to him. And then Solomon dealt righteously with him in verse 52. It says, Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not a hair of him will fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. So for Adonijah, this was a place of refuge. And Solomon said, if you will show yourself a worthy man, and you will submit as the, uh, as the rest of Israel submits to their king, not a hair will fall from your head. Later we find out that Adonijah was corrupted, and he had evil designs, and he still thought that he might could have the kingdom. He tries to... Have I believe he has Bathsheba go to David and try to convince, I mean not to David, to Solomon, and try to convince Solomon to allow Adonijah to marry one of David's former concubines. And his, him doing this would have given him authority in the eyes of the people of Israel and could have caused a rebellion. And so Solomon, in his wisdom, saw the evil devices of his heart and Adonijah later down the road paid for it with his life. But in these moments the four horns of the altar were a place of refuge from him, for him, and he was given a chance to do honorably. Sadly, he did not. 1 Kings 2.28, a little bit later. Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. After David's death, Solomon, Solomon went about making things right dealing with unconfessed and unresolved sin in the land. One of those was Joab. Joab was a faithful general of David for many years. It was Joab that went to David and said, you are sinning by numbering the people. Why don't you just trust God to give us what we need? And then David ordered him to go do the census and Joab purposely didn't count certain people because he knew it was wrong. So there were righteous things in him, but there were also unrighteous things. 
Joab was one who hastily took up the sword. Remember, we talked about this in martial arts class yesterday. Karma. You reap what you sow. Jesus said, he that lives by the sword will die by the sword. Joab was one who lived by the sword. And when it, when it came to the wars between David and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, after Saul's death, okay, David, David was trying to bring unity to the land and possess the kingdom God had given him. And when God had given him that kingdom, Joab was hasty. Okay? Joab was hasty and he killed Ishbosheth's general, Abner. Abner was a peaceful man that came to try to bring resolution to this situation and Joab killed him, a man that was more righteous than he. Later, when Absalom attempted to assert power and authority over the kingdom and take David's place, he had a general, Amasa, and Joab hastily killed him after there was resolution brought to that matter. So there was blood on his hands. He was an unrighteous man that was an angry man and lived by the sword. He knew once David was dead, he was in trouble. He knew it was payday. What did he do? It says he ran and grabbed hold of the horns of the altar, just like, um, just like uh, 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 Adonijah had done. Okay? He caught hold on the horns of the altar, altar, and it was told Solomon that Joab was fled into the tabernacle of the Lord. He is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go fall upon him. So for Joab, in a, in a superstitious religious sense, the horns provided no refuge for him. Benaniah was sent in there and he slayed Joab. And blood was avenged. And sin was purged from the land. So these horns, though a place of security, were not so in a religious or a superstitious sense. Our prayers to God are a place of security, but only from, a, from a, a, a pure heart, only from a faith, an attitude of faith, only from an attitude of humility and submission to God, not in a religious sense. If you think because you pray over your meal that superstitiously you're going to be protected from sickness, you're a fool. If you think just because you pray about something, it's right... You're a fool. But if you come to God humble, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He will lift you up. If you come to His sanctuary and His refuge with humility, even as the, the uh, tax collector that stood outside the temple, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven like the Pharisee, but beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus said He went away justified, not the Pharisee. If we'll come to God in prayer always, with humility, seeking to know Him and to be obedient, then, it, then the prayers of the saints and the prayers as portrayed at this golden altar of incense are a refuge, a place of security, but not religiously and not superstitiously. Just like with salvation, just because you walk an aisle and say a prayer and punch the church time card every Sunday has no value apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the work of God that comes in salvation. But from these horns, a voice said, Loose these angels bound in the Euphrates. This altar in heaven was directly related to the prayers of the saints and the cries of the martyrs in Revelation chapter, chapter 6 for vengeance. 
So in a sense, this voice from the altar that orders the ushering forth of that sixth seal is what? It's an answer to prayer. It's an answer to prayer. The horrible judgment that is about to follow is an answer to the prayers of God's people. It says in Revelation chapter 6, these martyrs under the altar, their souls are under this altar. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost Thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? God said, rest for a little season. Just wait. Sometimes God answers our prayers by saying yes. Sometimes no. And sometimes wait. And trust me, I think we've seen that in situations here in our church body where we prayed and prayed and prayed for things for a long time and it finally came to pass. And God taught us many things during that period of waiting and now we look back and it's not such a big deal. Praise God for it. But here is the vengeance that these martyrs were praying for. Did you know that the vengeance of God, it says in Revelation 13, is the patience and faith of the saints. You know, when we talk about God's vengeance and looking forward to a day when evil will be put down, where the wicked will be destroyed and there will be righteousness, some people look at that and say, that's so evil. How can you want to see judgment? I'll just be flat up honest and I don't even care if this goes online. Did I shed a tear for the Charlie Hebdo magazine artist in France that were slaughtered last week? Nope. As far as I'm concerned, they got what was coming to them. The, people, the, the, the Muslim terrorists that died are getting what's coming to them too. The sad thing is those magazine artists and those shooters are probably in close quarters and cells together in a holding cell waiting that final judgment. You know, they're separated by a great gulf from a place that used to be paradise, but today there is no Father Abraham to call out to. There is no Lazarus to call out to and say, give me a drop of water to cool my tongue or go back and warn my brethren. No, paradise is empty. That's been ushered into the presence of God because of Jesus. But those wicked, vile, filthy, wretched, abominable, apostate magazine authors had been not just... Not only were they mocking Muhammad, but they'd been mocking Jesus Christ and His salvation for years. Filthy trash. And you know, when you act like that, when you've been warned and you do it time and time again and you purposely put stuff out there to provoke people, that's what happens. It's just another example of you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Those things happen with those that mock God. Because God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And in what happened, there was vengeance. And vengeance, according to the Bible, not according to your emotions, not according to the modern day church, it says is the patience and faith of the saints. I don't know about you, but I look forward to a day when, there, when wickedness is put down. When the mockers and the scoffers, whether it be people claiming to follow God, but actually um, following Satan and a prophet of Satan and trying to force devil doctrine down your throat, or whether it be people that deny God and mock Him by saying He doesn't exist, regardless of what it is, there's a day coming when it will be put down and righteousness will reign and the earth will be purged of this wickedness so that the saints can live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And that purging is large. We're going to see that this sixth trumpet involves 
a third of the world's population. The fourth seal involved a fourth of the world's population being killed. So by the end of the sixth trumpet, we have what? A whole half of the world's population killed, judged, purged by God. I know those are harsh words, and it's a terrible thing what happened. And the men, that, the murdered and the murderers will all be judged by God for their deeds. Both the murdered and those that murder. It's terrible, it's tragic, but my friends, God is not mocked. You don't mock God. You don't hang Jesus on a cross. You don't depict Him. You don't hang Him on a cross and mock Him. You don't depict Him as a homosexual. You don't depict Him in vile acts that trounce upon His holy name and expect to escape judgment. You don't claim to speak for God and promote a devil's prophet and escape judgment. It doesn't happen. Judgment fell that day not only upon Islamic terrorists, but upon wicked magazine editors who mocked God and Jesus Christ. Don't fall for the lies that these were just people poking fun at Muhammad. I thought the Muhammad cartoons were funny. And they did portray truth concerning the reality of that man in his life. But there were a whole lot of other cartoons that made a mockery of my Lord and Savior, of your Lord and Savior. Don't fall for the hype and the lies. No, je suis Charlie. I'm not part of that. I'm not them. You know, that's the cry going around the world today. Je suis Charlie. I am Charlie. No, no, we are not. Uh-uh. That's wicked. We're not. I'll end with this today. Revelation chapter 13, 9 and 10. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Praise God. It says in Psalm 58 that there's a day coming when the righteous will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. Because then a man will be able to say there is a judge that judges in the earth. There is a reward to the righteous. You see, the difference between us and the Muslims is this. We're willing to sit back and let God fight for Himself. We don't have to take up swords and fight for God. He doesn't need us. That's why we would never kill somebody that would depict our Christ like these wicked men depicted Him in that magazine. We would never kill them. We would never physically desire to harm them. We would never desire to try to put them to death. We would want to pray for them. We would desire to share the Gospel with them and speak it bluntly and warn them but we're not like these false prophets and these liars that follow a devil. The God of Islam is not Jehovah God. He's the dragon of Revelation chapter 12. He's that dragon. That's who they worship. Okay? That's why they kill to defend their God because Satan kills to defend his name. But the patience and faith of the saints is vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let's live by that. Not just when it comes to the wicked world, but when it comes to people in our lives that take advantage of us and lie about us and say all of these things. Let's let vengeance be the Lord's. And when vengeance comes, it's the patience and, patience and faith of the saints. This voice from the altar is an answer to the prayers of God's people. God answers prayer. And what's coming is not natural destruction. It's supernatural destruction. 
infernal destruction. We'll get into this next week. I mean, this is kind of interesting, this idea about angels bound in the Euphrates River. What's the, what's the significance of those things? And then later we read about the Euphrates River is dried up so the kings of the east can have a way to come and be gathered to Armageddon. So I think there's some interesting details here that we'll get into next week. And I'm not sure I've got an answer about what all of this really means. But what I do think is not only is the fifth trumpet judgment was demons, this is fallen angels. And I've often talked about how demons are different from fallen angels. They're all the minions of Satan, but they're different. So we'll talk about that next week. Anybody have any questions? I pray that was a blessing to you today. I know we get off on subjects and topics and things like that, but I think they're all relevant. And when there's something in the news that's relevant to the things we're talking about, we should discuss it.